So we've been uh, working through the, the letter of James um, as a church body, and so uh, I thought I would just uh, use one of these passages that we've looked at in, in Fairview because I think even for myself, there's a need to, to hear some of these uh, words over and over again, as I know I have certainly been convicted um, going through some of this material. And, uh, and so this morning, I uh, want to think just for a minute about a man who seemed to start off well in the faith, a man who professed faith in Christ and even spent much of his time evangelizing. He was studying the scriptures and uh, building up the church. He even worked alongside influential teachers and worked in church planting. For a time, he was commended by many as a shining example of what it means to be a disciple of Christ. And yet this particular man does not finish well. Over time, he does not guard his soul. He becomes complacent in his walk and his eye is ever drawn to the pleasures of this world system, the philosophies of this age. And over time, his heart turns from his king. Sadly, today, this story actually seems quite familiar. But the person I have in mind is someone we actually find in the New Testament. And he is described in a number of Paul's letters as Demas. And we're told that in, in various parts of Paul's letters that there was a time when he seemed to run well. When he was working close with the Apostle Paul and with others. And, and yet there's this statement in 2 Timothy 4.10 which Paul makes. A tragic statement about this man. And it says, for Demas in love with this present world has deserted me and gone to Thessalonica. And so it's the story of a man who did not finish well, and as far as we know, uh, abandoned Paul, abandoned the, 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 the mission that he once seemed to be on. And you see, Paul says it is because he has this love with the present world, the, the dangers of worldliness, we might say. And these are not only dangers that are found in the early church or maybe uh, new dangers with the Industrial Revolution or, you know, us who live in the, the information age, uh, these dangers have always warred against the followers of Christ. And many, once seeming sincere Christians, are led away and abandon the faith. And so James is writing this letter, um, actually, it's believed that James may be one of the first letters written in the New Testament, so it, it dates back quite early. And at the beginning of the letter, we find he has in mind particularly um, the audience to which he writes, the 12 tribes in the dispersion, greetings. And so he's writing primarily to a Jewish audience, because at that time, it, it may have even been before, there was a real understanding of the ingrafting of the Gentile community. So, so he's using this language that is very common in the prophets in the Old Testament of adultery, of Israel of old, who continually turned away from the living God. And we find that this is a danger as well in the church. Because we experience the blessings of the new covenant does not mean that we are somehow exempt from the lure of worldliness, the lure of, of being enticed by the spirit of the age. And so we need to be on guard against this danger day after day in our homes, in our marriages, examining our own hearts before God. Do we truly have a love for God, a desire for him? 
or are we going through these sort of external uh, motions? James is very concerned that the people not become so familiar with the world that they end up as the enemies of God. Now, this is not a passage of scripture that you will likely find written on a t-shirt. Uh, it's probably not a passage of scripture that someone is going to put on their wall as a mural. Uh, it, it's a difficult passage. It's heavy. Um, but we must understand as Christians that if the word of God comes at us and wounds us, offends us even, that is for our ultimate good if it leads us to repentance and a greater reliance upon Christ and his sufficiency. Far better that we're wounded 10,000 times in this life by scripture and be saved than to pretend such verses don't exist and end up forfeiting our own soul. Proverbs 27, 6 says, Faithful are the wounds of a friend, but profuse are the kisses of an enemy. And we know that it is the honorable and careful surgeon who detects the tumor and then removes it, though he must cut the patient. It is a wicked surgeon who doesn't care to investigate or to make a proper diagnosis or to make the patient uncomfortable. That would be malpractice. That would be evil. And so as we come to the scriptures, we must ask God humbly to do his work in us, though it may make us uncomfortable. And we know that James, in his letter, in many ways, uh, it could be said that James is giving the church a series of tests because James is not willing to allow people to think that there can be a sort of faith in Christ apart from a changed life following after Christ. Uh, the, 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 the title could be of the, of the book, A Living Faith. Um, and actually, it is so strong on the evidences that must be present in the life of a Christian that, that Luther, in particular, did not like initially the, the letter of James and called it uh, a very a strawy epistle, as though it was, was lacking any gospel substance. Later, he did affirm that this is, in fact, part of, of God's word, but it is hard-hitting, and it is dealing with the nitty-gritty of our life. But James is likely um, even pastoring in Jerusalem at this time and served there for many years. So it also has a, a pastoral element. And you can see how he uses some rich imagery and he's bringing home the, the word of God to bear upon our life in very practical ways. So may we receive uh, the word of God this morning as such. And if you look just up a little bit from chapter 4, You'll see in verse 13 there, uh, in my Bible, it has the heading wisdom from above, uh, right above that section. And, and there James contrasts the wisdom that has come down from heaven, the wisdom that is, he says, um, pure and peaceable and gentle, open to reason, full of mercy and good fruits, impartial and sincere. And he contrasted that with the wisdom of this world, which is producing bitter jealousy, jealousy, selfish ambition in your hearts. Uh, he, he is contrasting these two systems or ways of thinking, these two forms of wisdom, the wisdom from above that produces in the Christian peace and gentleness and love, and the wisdom of this world, which produces selfish ambition and bitterness and jealousy. 
And so he's following that picture of the, these two forms of wisdom with a call to holiness, to be on guard against the danger of worldliness. So what exactly is worldliness? It's not really a word that we probably use in everyday speech. Um, we kind of have a general idea that, well, it's, it's not a good thing for a Christian. We don't want to be known as worldly. Um, C.J. Mahaney, in a little book called Worldliness, gave this definition. He said, worldliness, then, is a love for this fallen world. It's loving the values and pursuits of the world that stand opposed to God. More specifically, it is to gratify and exalt oneself to the exclusion of God. It rejects God's rule. It replaces it with our own, like creating our own Bibles, it says. It exalts our opinions above God's truth. It, ex- it elevates our sinful desires for the things of this fallen world above God's commands and promises. And John Owen would describe worldliness uh, simply, but I think beautifully, as uh, living affections for dying things. And, and, and as you deal with the very affections of your heart, this begins to expose where our true allegiance lies. And John Owen is concerned that we have these living affections, these love, this desire for things that are actually dying, for things that are not of eternal value, things that are are not pertaining to God and his kingdom and his word, but, but things that are passing away. And when we set our affections upon such things, that could be described as worldliness. What is it that you get excited about? What is it that you long to do? Or when you have a spare moment uh, of spare time or or ability to to sit and think, where where does your mind generally go? A good chance that where it does go is an indication of what is most dear to you, what is most important to you. And I'm not saying it's bad to enjoy a hobby or maybe some sports. You know, I took the boys last night to their first uh, live hockey game, not last night, Friday night, sorry, uh, to their first live hockey game, the Grand Prairie Kings were playing the Fairview Flyers, and uh, of course, the, 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 I think the Kings beat them like 10 to 2 or something. It was quite the thrashing. And, uh, and yet, you know, as you're there, you realize a lot of these people, like, it, it almost felt a bit like, I mean, I haven't been to a hockey game in a long time, but it kind of felt a bit like a church service. You know, like for some of these people, this is their life. And the, the, their little kids, you know, they all the, the, the gear on and the hats, and they're all excited and waving and cheering, and there's foghorns. And, and, and again, I'm not saying it's evil to, to get excited about a sports game. But when, when, when those sorts of things begin to pale uh, in comparison to your love for the people of God, for the, the gathering of the saints on Sunday, or, or your, your, your desire to be in the word, I mean, if you're following the, the hockey games more readily and with more passion and zeal than you are the current Bible study or times of prayer, then that is concerning. And I think we need to heed the warnings of James. We too can be guilty of, of embracing various forms of idols in our hearts. And I think you guys have also started the Judges study by uh, John Schneider, right? Uh, have you started that one yet? I know Mori was saying you were going to. Yeah. So uh, we went through that as well, and it was like, oh, my goodness, the parallels with the, the book of Judges in our own day. I was like, I had uh, no idea. It was a, a wonderful study, and, uh, and pray you can also continue uh, discerning these sort of dangers that live within our own culture and day. 
So worldliness is this living affections for dying things. And James is going to show us not only the poisonous fruit that comes from worldliness, and he is describing it when our hearts are set on these things that are not of God, then he says that it causes war within us, and there is, there is this desire for what we cannot have. He says you murder, you covet, and you fight and quarrel, and all of these fruits, if you will, are the result of the root of worldliness, of this living affection for dying things. Now, is James saying that the, the early church was actually, you know, knocking one, one another off, uh, killing each other, they're, they're literally murdering one another? Um, I mean, he may have in mind that, yes, it was these early Jews that actually uh, called for the crucifixion of Christ, and we know that there was real persecution, especially with the, the party of the circumcision hunting down those like Paul trying to kill them. That was a, a real problem. But in many ways, if you look at the Sermon on the Mount and the letter of James, there is a strong parallel with what Jesus was saying and what James is saying. And you remember in the Sermon on the Mount how Jesus said that if you have hatred in your heart, then that is likened to murder. It is the, the very source from which murder comes. There is this hatred, this jealousy, this, this bitterness in your heart towards someone, and that let run its course will end in a physical murder. But there is this, this, this intention of murder. And I think that is what James is probably um, referring to more here. It is, is as professing Christians, sometimes, you, and, and I've been in some horrendous business meetings that, that end in, in yelling and, and screaming, and, and people don't talk to each other for weeks afterwards. I mean, that is a form of murder, and, and that should not be happening among the people of God. And James is saying the root of that, the, the place from which that comes, is this love of the things of this world, and a heart that is divided, this adulterous spirit that is not loyal to Christ alone, but has gathered for itself other lovers. And he is calling us to repent and to humble ourselves before God and to throw ourselves upon the grace of God. So James, in many ways, is teaching here what he learned from Jesus. And we see even as he describes this terrible fruit that is coming out of, of the, these, these churches from these early Christians, we find that, that this is very consistent with the Sermon on the Mount. If you remember the Beatitudes of Christ, where does Jesus start with the, the blessedness, the, the blessed life, if you will? Well, blessed are you who are poor in spirit, he says. For yours is the kingdom of heaven. You see, the, there's this place of, of poverty of spirit, of repentance, of brokenness before God that actually brings about the true blessing of God. And, and James is getting at the exact same thing. As we think about the, the problem of worldliness, we must ask, well, then what is the response? How do we, how do we battle against this tendency? Well, it must be rooted out. And the way in which that is rooted out is, is as we humble ourselves by the enabling power of the Spirit of God and we repent, we, can, we confess our sin to God and we throw ourselves upon his mercy and grace. You see, Jesus spoke the truth perfectly. 
And we sometimes forget that Jesus said some very hard things. He was not always Jesus with a big smile and carrying the lamb on his shoulders. At times, he was Jesus who was in your face, offending you with the truth and making you cry. He was not a respecter of feelings and religious traditions, but he feared God and therefore proclaimed the truth. And James is doing the exact same thing. Because that is the loving thing to do. Just like the surgeon who must first diagnose the problem and then, and then break the news to you of, of the sickness so that the cure can be sought after. That is loving, though it is not comfortable. How many of you kids have been to the dentist maybe recently? Has anyone gone to the dentist recently? Does anybody like going to the dentist? Probably not. Don't see any hands going up. It's not really a fun experience, is it? But if you have a toothache, if suddenly your mouth is hurting and you can't eat the things you like, you can't have ice cream, you know, you can't have the, your favorite popcorn because there's a problem in your tooth, right? There's, there's this decay, this cavity. And you might try for a time to take some Advil or Tylenol to ease the pain, but you know that if there's a problem, if there is this decay, then really what must happen is it must be removed and then the proper filling applied. The pain isn't so much the problem, it is the decay in your tooth. So the dentist, you know, you go there and they do the x-ray and they come back and tell you, yes, you know, you have a cavity in your tooth. We're going to have to put in a filling. And so they, they strap you, well, I don't really strap you, it feels like you're strapped, you know, into this big chair. And then they get out their little tools and they're grinding away at your tooth. And it's, it's not really a fun experience, is it? It's actually very uncomfortable. You're lying there and, and he's asking you questions and you're trying to mumble through the saliva and you've got this little piece of spandex that's kind of wedged into your teeth. And, and it's just a miserable experience. And you may ask yourself, why do we do that? Why do we put ourselves through that misery on top of the bill that comes at the end, which is never pleasant? We know that all of that pain, all of that misery is for the result of, of removing the decay so that the pain will be gone, so that I can eat that ice cream cone again, right? So we, we understand on a physical level that there must be a season of discomfort if we are to receive the proper cure. But when it comes to spiritual sickness, for some reason, we often want to run away from anything that makes us uncomfortable, anything that might expose a problem within us. We, we avoid these texts of scriptures. Maybe you're going through a Bible reading, and uh, I know my, my wife and I have talked before, you're going through a Bible reading, we're going to read through the Bible in a year, and you come to some of these difficult passages, and I have been guilty for for example, maybe going through the book of Judges and you're like, okay, I'm going to listen to it on audio, uh, on, on, you know, on double speed, so it goes extra fast. I don't really want to linger over these sorts of texts. And we're guilty on a spiritual level of, of neglecting, not only being exposed by God's word, but then also receiving the cure that he prescribes. And we will distract ourselves, won't we, with anything, if it's maybe video games or hobbies or leisure or entertainment or work or family, we'll, we'll distract ourselves from having to look intently into the mirror of God's word and allowing it to truly expose us. In fact, James used this imagery in, in chapter 122. Uh, you'll recognize this passage in James 122. James admonishes that we uh, be doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. 
For if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he's like a man who intently looks at his natural face in a mirror, for he looks at himself and goes away at once, forgets what he was like. But the one who looks into the perfect law, the law of liberty, and perseveres, being no hearer who forgets, but a doer who acts, he will be blessed by his doing. So, dear Christian, may you get this. May you take time personally, as a family, as a church, to plead with God to give you a heart of humility and then come to his word, expecting to at times be wounded by his word, exposed, confronted as you look into it, like James says, as though looking into a mirror. And as you look into that mirror, as you're meditating upon the scripture and reading the scripture, it's exposing attitudes and thoughts and imperfections within you. And then don't turn and run away, but, but again, cry out to God, plead with God, Lord, I, I, I acknowledge what is being exposed within me. And I remember uh, Pastor Ben often pointing out that, that confess, when we talk about confessing our sin, it, it means to say the same thing, to say the same thing as God's word. And so if God's word calls adultery sinful, lustful thoughts sinful, then I'm going to agree with God. I'm going to confess that to God. And, and this is how we humble ourselves before the word. We allow it to expose us, and then we confess our sin. We say, yes, Lord, I agree. That is wrong. That is sinful. My, my, my covetous thoughts for, for my neighbor's possessions or, or my neighbor's wife or, or for my neighbor's job and these thoughts and these attitudes within me. This is wrong. This is sinful. God, please help me. Root this out of my heart and mind. I loathe it. I repent of it. Break me, Lord. I find at times the need to even repent of my repentance, my inability to repent. I mean, yes, it's one thing to say sorry, and we see this, and uh, if you children are honest, sometimes, you know, you're caught doing something, maybe you hit your brother or sister, and, and mom caught you, and, and now you're in trouble, and, and you know that, that she wants you to say sorry, and the way to get back to doing what you're doing is to say sorry, but, but you're not really all that sorry inside, are you? You're kind of, kind of glad that, that you finally got back at your brother or sister. And, and as adults, we do this too. We, we know the right things externally, but do we take time to consider God? In my heart, I actually feel no remorse. I actually feel no regret for that. I actually enjoyed that. And, and God, help me. Grant me repentance. Break my heart over the things that I know are wrong, God. Help me repent properly. I don't know if you, um, with the new year, maybe you establish some New Year's resolutions, some, some goals to work towards in the new year, or you know, maybe you're like many of us as well, who are just taking one day at a time and, and just trying to keep one foot in front of the other, and, and that's perfectly understandable as well. I know we're a house with uh, young children, and so um, you know, someone said, uh, I don't know, it's probably a comedian or something, that having two children feels like you're, you're treading water, and then when the third child comes, it feels like you're, you're drowning, and then somebody throws you a baby, right? <laughs> and, and, and we know that, that life is extremely busy and can be overwhelming, and, 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 and yet we, we want to still take time, whether it's listening to even uh, the Bible on audio or, or music or, or podcasts, things that will help to, to turn your mind towards the things of God. 
with the new year, my wife decided to go on a purging spree, and this happens every, oh, I don't know, three or four years, I suppose. It seems like when we have a child that is, is coming out of diapers for some reason, it, it sparks this desire in my wife to begin throwing uh, hundreds of things away. And, uh, and so this has been happening uh, in this new year. And uh, I've been telling everyone that the boys and I are actually on our best behavior right now because if we are considered in the way or, or uh, you know, uh, <laughs> that we might, we, might, we might find ourselves in the local thrift store. And uh, <laughs> I've encouraged our congregation, if you find me in the thrift store, please purchase me, you know, back. Because, uh, <laughs> no, I'm just joking. But uh, we have, I have missed a few things that my wife has said, well, actually, I, I, I got rid of that, <clears throat> which was my fault for leaving it in somewhere it shouldn't have been. But, um, but I'm sure you've gone through this as well, where you feel this need to declutter, to get rid of things. But when was the last time that you felt this need spiritually to linger before the Lord, to, to come humbly before him and say, God, I acknowledge that my affections are all over the place. I have many affections for dying things. When was the last time that we we're truly broken before the Lord over our need, over our, our lack of, of vigilance, our, our lack of zeal for the things of the Lord. And I know even through the strange COVID years, is whatever we want to call those years, I'm still not sure what we call them, but uh, strange years nonetheless, I know is for us and I know for you as you gathered and you knew there may be real consequences to gathering uh, for many never knew you might be arrested that Sunday and hauled off to jail just for gathering with the saints and and in that time there also came this this sense of urgency that a lot of peripheral things didn't really seem to matter as much did it because we understood that what we're doing is of eternal value and and I'm willing to to pay the consequences for that and and then as as, as life gets a little bit more so normal feeling there's there's this kind of tendency to to again just into complacency to kind of become a little less vigilant, a little less discerning, uh, a little less intentional about what we're doing. And, and, and we need to come again and again, even as David did before the Lord, and pray, God, search me, try me, know my thoughts. We need to do this individually. We need to do this as married couples and as families at times, acknowledging our guilt. And, and one of the, the most precious things to me as a father is is at times maybe my wife and I had had an argument or maybe my son and I uh, had had a disagreement or they were upset and, and, then, and then to see by the, by the grace of God a, a humility and a willingness to say, you know what, I'm, I'm sorry, that, that wasn't fair, that wasn't right. Can you please forgive me? And in the same way that our, our relationships need that element of repentance and, and humility, so it is as we walk with the Lord. Not that we need to be saved over and over again. You remember Jesus told Peter, he's like, uh, when he was washing the disciples' feet, and Peter's like, listen, if, if, if this is necessary, then just wash all of me. And, and Jesus says, Peter, there's no need to wash all of you, but only your feet need to be clean. And, and this is a picture of if you are in Christ, then, then you are clean. You are justified before a holy God. His blood has covered you. You don't need to come and be born again over and over. You are his. And yet your feet, as you walk in this world, they need this ongoing cleansing, this ongoing washing. And this happens in confession, in repentance. Not to justify our sin, 
but to come before God and say, Lord, help me, forgive me, wash me afresh, fill me afresh with your spirit. Instead of making excuses for our, our, our lack of, uh, of uh, zeal for the Lord, you know, we may say, well, I've been so sick or I've, I've been so busy. Maybe once we're financially stable, then I will take seriously my walk with the Lord. Or maybe after I'm finished school, then I'll have time to really pursue Christ, to really deal with some of these attitudes in my own heart. Or once the kids are older and I can actually, you know, think normally, then I will begin to read the Bible. And, and we can pretty much justify anything, can't we? And I know that for myself, within me lurks plenty of selfish ambition, covetousness, I can be quick to anger. I can be defensive of my own sin. And this stinging rebuke from James hits close to home. He says, you do not have because you do not ask. And you ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. And maybe just linger there for a moment and say, is that true of me? Do I neglect to come to God and simply ask in humility and in prayer? Or am I always quick to make my own decision to, to Google it or to phone mom and ask her opinion? Or am I coming to the Lord and asking him in prayer? But then when I do come, am I just coming with this attitude of, of desperation of God, you have to bail me out here. You have to help me. I, I, I've messed up. And then we come with these false motives and, and, and God doesn't answer and we become frustrated. And, and James says, listen, humble yourself before a holy God. Don't be like this culture that is offended at everything. I mean, you're hesitant to say yes, sir, and yes, ma'am in this culture because you're afraid somebody might be upset that you have, you know, misgendered them or something. And, and it's just ridiculous that we, we can't take a serious word. But we cannot be like that as Christians. We must humble ourselves and say, God, I'm willing to be wounded by your word because I know it's as you wound me that you will also bind me up. You will also remove the dross from my life and, and purify me and make me a ready bride for Christ who is coming soon. And we want to be a pure and spotless bride without blemish. But this means we must be intentional. Maybe it's simply going for a walk. I remember um, when I was in Bible school, a pastor encouraged me, if you have difficulty focusing in prayer, then sometimes just go for a walk with the intention of while you're walking, pray. And uh, I have certainly found that helpful at times. Maybe just, you know, saying, look, I'm going to go outside. I'm going to go for a walk for 10, 15 minutes. And as you're walking, just praying to the Lord, putting on these means of grace that God has given the means through which God draws near to us. And, and James actually gives a promise that if you draw near to God, he will draw near to you. And you may think, well, how do I do that? How do I draw near to God? Well, the answer is the means of grace that God has given. Well, what are the means of grace? Uh, a while ago, we went through a, a book by Don Whitney, Spiritual Disciplines of the Christian Life, which essentially are listing the means of grace reading scripture, memorizing scripture, prayer, the fellowship of the saints, evangelism, partaking of communion. I mean, it just goes through the, the various means that God has given. It's as we commit to do these things, even when we don't feel like doing it, what happens is that, that the God uses these means to impart grace to us, and he also draws near to us 
as we draw near to him. And we mature and we grow by his grace. One of my greatest fears in life is to become a Demas. One who ran well for a season, but then slowly begins to become uninterested in the things of the Lord. Slowly turns to the world and, 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 and adopts the philosophies of this age. Many of the guys I went to Bible school with have now actually walked away from the faith completely, or some have gone off into strange teachings where, oh, we don't have to talk about hell anymore because hell doesn't exist. Well, now you have just dismantled the gospel. If, if, if there is no hell, then, then the news isn't really that good. And, and what are we being saved from if God's not a just, holy God? And I fear in my own heart this tendency to drift, and I'm sure at times you feel it as well. But may we take hold of these promises. Draw near to God. He'll draw near to you. Resist the devil. He will flee from you. Humble yourself before God, and he will exalt you. Give yourself to these promises that we might persevere. Today we have fancy names for what happened to Demas. We call it deconstructing, as though this is a liberating thing. Oh, it's a, it's a new beginning. I'm deconstructing that old faith, that old way of thinking. This is now a new me, a free me. I'm expressing who I truly am. I'm finally liberated from all of that religious bondage. I'm deconstructing my faith. But actually, what they find is in the end, it's the same death the same bondage to the father of lies whose only desire for you is to drag you to hell with himself. That is what is, is, is left. It is either Christ or chaos, and there is no middle ground. And so today, even as Joshua would say, choose this day whom you will serve. Will you humble yourself now before the King of Kings and Lord of Lords? Will you repent of your sin, turn from the death of this world, and flee to Christ, the author of life? For now there is a window of grace open that men might repent and be saved. But we know a day of judgment approaches when Christ will come not as the humble baby, but as the warrior king, the judge of all the nations, and every king will bow down, everyone will bow down and confess Jesus Christ as Lord. But you don't want to bow down because your legs have been broken by the rod of iron. Rather now, humble yourself before him. Acknowledge your guilt. Acknowledge that you have rebelled against the king, the creator of life, the one who's given you breath in your lungs every day, the one who keeps your heart beating. Your sin is against him and him alone. And yet today, even as, as Brent read for us, we have this invitation to come, buy without money, come and eat and drink. Christ has given his very life that you might live. He has taken his shame upon himself that we might be forgiven. But you must humble yourself. You must call upon him and turn from the death of this world and flee to Christ. Will you do that this morning? And for you who are in Christ, 
May you press on in the fight, not growing weary, but gathering together, encouraging one another, praying for one another, putting on the means of grace, running the race that is before you. For soon Christ will come, and our faith will be made sight, and great will be the joy of all those who have waited for him. Let's bow in prayer, and we will close there this morning. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. Lord, we know that it is true. And your, Lord, yet it at times does offend us, especially in a day and time when everyone seems offended at everything. Lord, may you grant to us this humility that James is describing, an eagerness to, to be exposed by your word that we might also be healed. We thank you for the promise that Christ said that he will, a bruised reed, he will not break off, but is eager to restore and to strengthen all those who come before him and call upon his wisdom and grace and strength. Lord, we know in, in our old man, in our nature after Adam, we are a rebellious people. We are prone to wander. But God, may you make us more and more into the likeness of the new Adam of Christ our new head. May you help us day by day to take up the cross, to crucify those old intentions and attitudes and, and lusts, Lord, to put them to death through the gospel and to live unto Christ. Lord, give us boldness in a day that desperately needs to hear this message. A call to repent. We know that it will cause people to hate us. It will cause people to malign us and say all kinds of evil things about us because the darkness hates the light. But Lord, out of love for fellow man and out of obedience to the commission of Christ, help us to do this all the more. And I thank you for this dear congregation. I thank you for the work that you have done and continue to do. Lord, may you just build them up in the faith, grant them unity and joy, that they might be a tremendous light in this city and beyond. And we ask this all now in Jesus' name.